Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome everyone to episode number 81 from Delving into Islam podcast. This is your host, Wa'il. And it is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a privilege that I'm able to talk to you about the religion of Islam and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is allowing me to share my knowledge with you. Thank you so much for listening and participating and sending in all your questions and suggestions. And speaking of which, if you have any questions or suggestions, please email me at delvingintoislam at gmail.com. Again, delvingintoislam at gmail.com, and I will get back to you as soon as possible, inshallah. Now, this podcast is for anyone, whether you are remotely curious about the religion of Islam, or if you are thinking about becoming a Muslim, or if you just became a Muslim, or if you are already a Muslim who wants to learn more about Islam, this podcast is for you, inshallah. And you also can follow me on Instagram at with Wa'il. Again, with Wa'il, uh, you know, for, uh, uh, you know, uh, announcements regarding the podcast, you know, regarding upcoming episodes and dates and, and all these things. Uh, now, with that being said, let's get right into today's topic. And in today's topic, we will talk about the conquest of Mecca. Now, before we talk about the conquest of Mecca, we need to understand what led to the conquest of Mecca. We know that there now there is a peace treaty going on between Quraysh and the Muslims, right? And, uh, uh, you know, in, in it, there is no fighting for 10 years. But also there was another clause that we never kind of mentioned in during the episode of the peace treaty. And that clause said basically or stated that if either the Muslims or, or Quraysh uh, form an alliance with, you know, other tribes... Those tribes must honor the treaty as well. You know, they must respect the treaty. They must follow the treaty as well. So, for example, if the Muslims, you know, made an alliance with tribe A and Quraysh made an alliance with tribe B. Now, tribe A and tribe B must honor the treaty and they cannot, for example, go to war with one another. They can't. They have to stay in peace for 10 years. Again, they must honor the treaty as if they, you know, were parts uh, of it. And that is the reason why all chaos will, uh, you know, uh, begin. Quraysh made an alliance with a tribe called Banu Bakr. And uh, Banu Bakr had a, a, a big animosity with another tribe called Khuza'a, which happened to have an alliance with the Muslims. So I'm assuming you guys see where this is heading. Now, the tribe of Abu Bakr wanted so badly to attack the tribe of Khuza'a. They wanted to attack them. They wanted to, you know, again, there was ongoing uh, a war between them, but kind of like the tribe of Khuza'a honored the treaty, so they didn't attack Banu Bakr, but Banu Bakr wanted to attack Khuza'a anyway. So they went to Quraysh and they said, hey, listen, we, we, we have to attack uh, the, the people of Khuza'a. We have to attack them. I know there's a peace treaty going on, but we need your blessings. And Quraysh kind of gave him the green light. They kind of winked at him like, okay, you can just go ahead, do it discreetly. Not just that, they supplied them with weapons to go and attack Khuza'a. And it worked. So basically, Banu Bakr uh, went, uh, you know, to the city of Khuza'a and they basically surprise attacked them in the middle of the night. But their plans were ruined uh, 
when you know someone saw them and instead of what was going to be like a very quick attack it turned into a massacre because you know the people of Khuza were alerted and it turned into like a big big chaos to the degree that one of the people of Khuza ran into the haram now we mentioned before that the haram is a place that you can't fight in it whether you're a muslim or not like arabs honored this it was a big deal you cannot fight in the haram so one from you know the tribe of Khuza'a went uh, into the haram to seek protection because he knows he won't be killed there. And chasing him was uh, a man from the tribe of Banu Bakr. And the man from the tribe of Banu Bakr literally killed him. He did not care. The man said, hey, listen, we worship the same God eventually because they both were pagan. So the man from Banu Bakr said, there is no God today. And then he struck the man from Khuza'a and killed him in the haram, which is a big deal. And the chieftains of Khuza'a managed to survive, you know, the, 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 the massacre. And they went straight to Medina and they uh, told the Prophet ﷺ about what happened. So the Prophet ﷺ got very irritated. And of course, it was exposed that Quraysh helped them. There was so many evidence. So the Prophet ﷺ sent a, a messenger to Quraysh telling them to cut ties with Banu Bakr and to pay the blood money. Now, the blood money is, uh, for those of you who do not know, is, is money basically you pay if you kill someone or even if you kill someone by mistake, whether you you know did it intentionally or not. It's called the fidya. You have to pay it because, you know, the sanctity of, you know, the human life and all these things. So you have to pay the blood money. So imagine it was a lot of money. It was Blood money is expensive. It's a lot of money. It's not, you know, a small amount. No, it's a lot of money. So the Prophet ﷺ said, for all those who died from Khuza'a, you guys have to come up with the blood money. You talk to, you know, Banu Bakr, come up with the blood money. Because it's your responsibility. You let them do this and you help them. And to that, Quraysh said, no. We won't cut ties with Banu Bakr. We won't pay the blood money case closed so the prophet took that as breaking the peace treaty they broke the the peace treaty they broke the peace treaty so the prophet gathered uh you know his companions and one day before they were supposed to go to mecca he told them the destination he said we're going to mecca he was being very very discreet not that he didn't trust him We, we know this that was from the wisdoms of the Prophet ﷺ that he kept certain things, you know, uh, close to the chest. And uh, he announced it a day before and he said, tomorrow we will march to uh, Mecca and we will attack. Now, there were around 10,000 men in the army of the Muslims. Now, we have to, we let, let's pause. During the peace treaty, we said that Islam spread like never before. Remember, during the peace treaty, you know, in the peace treaty at Hudaybiyah itself, the Muslims were only 1,400 people, 1,400 men. And from the treaty of Hudaybiyah, during this whole peacetime until the conquest of Mecca, the Muslims became from 1,400 to 10,000. For those who, you know, uh, claim that Islam was spread by the sword, look at the numbers. Look at the numbers. So now, 
the Muslims, of course, we have many tribes. They're not they're not all living in Medina. They're not all emigrating. Some tribes in its entirety became Muslims. In its entirety became Muslims. You know? So they live in their own tribe. They don't need to emigrate. They're not persecuted or anything like this. So you have many tribes that embraced Islam in the Arab Peninsula. And the Muslim army reached 10,000 men. So uh, while the Prophet was preparing, you know, and planning for the attack, a companion by the name of Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a, Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a heard about the attack and he sent a secret letter to Quraysh to tell them, be careful, the Muslims are coming. What? A companion committed treason? Not really. So, Hatib is not originally from uh, Quraysh. He's an immigrant, right? He immigrated with the Muslims from Mecca to Medina. He lived in Mecca, but he was not from Quraysh. He was a slave. And he bought his freedom, and then he became a Muslim, but his family still live in, in Mecca as slaves, okay? Uh, so, what Hatib did is he basically wrote the letter, and he sent it with a lady who is from Quraysh, but she was, you know, visiting Medina. Now, we know that the, the, the treaty is still ongoing, officially, right? So you have people from Quraysh are in Medina and people from Medina are... We said that they deal with one another like no problem, right? So there was this lady from Quraysh. She was visiting Medina. He found out about her. He went and he paid her money and he told her, take this letter and give it to, for example, Abu Sufyan, one of the seniors in, 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 in Mecca. But be discreet. I don't want anyone to know about this letter. He did not tell her the content of the letter, right? And he told her to be discreet and to hide it. So that woman basically uh, hid the letter inside the braids of her hair. And she got uh, on a caravan that was heading to Mecca and she started going. Now, this was uh, the perfect plan. Nobody found out about it. Nobody saw him giving the letter. But we have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is there. Don't ever forget that, my dear brothers and sisters. He's always watching. If you think you're doing something evil in secret, guess what? It's not totally in secret because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows it. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends Jibreel to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa assigns Zubair and Ali to go and retrieve the letter. And he basically tells them exactly what the woman looks like and where is the caravan by the time they will reach it? He said that you, you, when you, you know, get on your horses and you chase the caravan, try to catch up to it, and it will be in this X location. Go, and she has the letter. That woman. So of course Ali, you know, uh, and Zubair, they go, uh, they ride their horses, they catch up to uh, to the lady, and then they demand her to, you know, hand them the letter. But the lady said. I don't have any letter. What are you talking about, right? So they start searching her belongings. They find nothing. So the lady said, see, I told you, I don't have any letters. I don't know what you're talking about. So Ali said, and this is a very famous uh, quote by Ali. He said, I swear by Allah that neither our prophet has been lied to, nor have we been lied to. You will either give us the letter right now or we will strip you and search you directly. What is Ali saying? 
Jibreel did not lie to the Prophet and the Prophet would never lie to them. So you're saying you don't have the letter? Nope, you do have the letter. And we will strip you and search you to get that letter because we are 100% positive that you possess the letter. So when she saw their determination, she basically took out the letter and gave it to them. So they took the letter and they went back to the Prophet ﷺ. And our Prophet ﷺ called Hatib. He called Hatib and he asked him, Oh Hatib, did you do this? Now we know that Jibreel told the Prophet ﷺ that yeah, Hatib did this, right? But it's out of courtesy. You know, out of you know the ultimate wisdom and leadership, the Prophet ﷺ still asked the question, Did you do this? And we should learn from the Prophet. ﷺ. Of course, the Prophet ﷺ didn't even for a second doubt Jibreel. Jibreel is not pulling a prank, right? He's not pulling a prank. They found the letter, and it was absolutely the same way that the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informed Jibreel to tell the Prophet. ﷺ. But the Prophet ﷺ is demonstrating to us how to treat people. Verify. When someone tells you something about someone else, verify. Especially if it's related to you. If it's, you know, going to affect your relationship with them, verify. And basically, uh, Hatib responded and said, O Prophet of Allah, I did not do this because of disbelief. And I'm not a hypocrite. I was not trying to stop you from conquering Mecca because simply I know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will fulfill his decree no matter what. Rather, I wanted to establish a favor with Quraysh so when the time comes, they would spare my family. You know, they would take care of my family in the midst of the chaos because think about it. Hatib's family are slaves. They're owned by people from Quraysh, right? So if they hear that the Muslims are attacking, maybe out of retaliation, they would kill them because, you know, we know that Hatib is a Muslim. The Muslims are attacking us. Here you go. Done. Or in the midst of chaos, something bad would happen to them. So he wants to make sure that they are protected. So basically what he's saying is, I know Allah, if, if, if it's meant for you to conquer, to conquer Mecca, Allah will make it happen. I have no problem with that. I have no doubt about that. The problem is I want to, you know, do a favor to the people, of, you know, of Quraysh. So they'll remember that favor. And when the time comes, they will spare my family. They wouldn't hurt my family. Right. And the Prophet Wasallam said, uh, Hatib said the truth. Hatib said the truth. Now, another interesting bit is that someone might ask, well, there's a lot of other immigrants who have families in Mecca. Well, there's a big difference because Hatib's family are slaves. The rest of the immigrants' families are high status. They're well-known families. No one can touch them, right? So that is the, the uh, you know the big difference between Hatib and the rest of the immigrants. And the Prophet added something very interesting. He said that after he uh, the Prophet said basically Hatib spoke the truth. The Prophet also said, no one shall say anything but good about Hatib from now on. The Prophet basically is providing protection for Hatib. Because people, even though the Prophet forgave him now, right? But people maybe, you know, down the line would say, hey, Hatib, you, you committed treason, man. 
Like, what were you thinking? So the Prophet said, do not say anything but good about Hatib. And do not ever bring this up you know, to Hatib or to anybody else. And amazingly, it was by the way, Hatib, uh, you know, outlived the Prophet ﷺ. You know, he passed away after the Prophet ﷺ passed away, and no one. It was never reported that any companion brought this situation or this incident up to Hatib or to anybody else. They never spoke about it, and they treated Hatib very normally. It's amazing how they listened to the Prophet ﷺ in everything. Subhanallah. Now, Omar wanted still wanted Hatib to be executed and we know Omar how jealous he is you know uh, on the religion and everything so again he's like you know what let's just execute him he committed treason so the Prophet said a very interesting uh, thing he said wasn't Hatib part of Badr didn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say that he forgave all the Muslims who participated in Badr and to that Omar started crying basically Allah forgave him who are you not to forgive him so Omar started crying and you know um, for because of this incident Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually revealed uh, in the chapter of the Mumtahina I think verse number one and two uh, now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying O believers Do not take the enemies of Islam as your allies Do not try to do them any favors They persecuted you and they persecuted your prophet they expelled you from Mecca, of course, and uh, they expelled the Prophet ﷺ. So do not try to, you know, be allies with them. تُلْقُونَ إِلَيْهِمْ بِالْمَوَدَّةِ وَأَنَا أَعْلَمُ بِمَا أَخْفَيْتُمْ وَمَا أَعْلَنْتُمْ You try to secretly form an alliance with them, you know, do them a favor. But Allah knows the secrets. We just mentioned that, right? We said Allah knows the secrets. Allah knows your secrets, what you hide and what you show. Allah knows both. Allah knows everything. You can't hide anything from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even your thoughts. But Allah does not, alhamdulillah, thanks to Allah, He does not judge us based on our thoughts. Alhamdulillah. So Allah revealed this verse addressing Hatib and anybody who would, you know, act like Hatib. Also, what we could, you know, learn from this incident is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have easily stopped the caravan or could have, you know, struck the woman with like lightning and she would have died. But Allah wants us to do the work. Again, what, what happened? Allah informed the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ informed Ali and Zubair and they both got on their horses. They started, you know, riding to the caravan. They caught up to the caravan. They did the work. And Allah gave them the solution on a silver platter. Gave them the letter. Allah told them everything. Informed the Prophet ﷺ, you know, everything about the letter. But yet, the Prophet ﷺ still had to do the work. The companions had to do the work. Again, nothing is for free. You can't just sit 
and expect Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give you everything. Not going to happen. You know? Also, another thing, and, and I think it's a very important thing to learn from this incident, is that when you judge someone, you look at the overall positives and negatives they have or they possess. Don't just look at the negatives. Because what did Hatib do? He did a big, it's a big deal. Yes, his intentions were you know, not evil, but he made a big mistake. But what else did he do? He participated in Badr. He is forgiven by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You, he's one of the highest ranks of the companions. All 300 who participated in Badr are the best of the companions. So now, when you look at Hatib, you don't say, oh, he, he wrote a letter, he was, you know, he feared for his family. Ah, he can't be trusted. No. The Prophet said it loud and clear. Didn't he participate in Badr? Look at everything. When you're judging someone, and technically you shouldn't be judging people, but again, if you are in the position of evaluating someone, of judging someone, look at all of their characteristics, positives and negatives, then you can judge. But don't look at the positives only because you want something from them, you know, you're being biased or whatever. And don't look at the negatives only because, you know, you're mad at them or you hate them. Or Look at everything and have, you know, make a very uh, rational conclusion. That's what the Prophet always did. Now, uh, after this incident was, you know, over, the Muslims, you know, marched to, uh, to Mecca and it was Ramadan, so they were all fasting. And then when they reached a city called uh, Qudayd, they started, they broke their fast and they started eating. And this uh, actually is a very important point because we know that there are certain things that you could break in terms of acts of worship while you're tra a traveler, like an official traveler. You have to be an actual traveler, right? Going from one hometown to another, from one city to another. Uh, so the Muslims, you know, you could break your fast and you can shorten your prayers. These are the most two significant things that you, you know, uh, you're allowed to do while you're uh, a traveler. You can shorten your prayers, meaning what? Any prayer that requires four rak'ahs become two. Any prayer that requires four, four rak'ahs becomes uh, two rak'ahs. So dhuhr prayers, two rak'ahs. Asr prayers, two rak'ahs. Aisha prayers, two rakas, right? Uh, and if you are fasting, you are allowed to break your fast. But now here's the issue. Here's the big uh, important point about this. When they reached Qudayd, another city, they broke their fast. Which means you don't break your fast while you're still in your hometown. You don't shorten your prayers while you're still in your hometown. Once you leave your hometown, whether by car, whether by plane, whether by train, whatever, once you're out of, you know, the parameter of your hometown, you can uh, use those passes like, you know, shorten your prayers and break your fast if you are fasting. So this is, this was a very important point. But anyway, lo and behold, they see Al-Abbas coming with his family. Who is Al-Abbas? Al-Abbas is the uncle of the Prophet Remember, he fought against the Muslims in the Battle of Badr, but he was captured by one of the angels, and he said, no, this is not the man. Remember this incident? He said, this, this um, the guy from the Ansar is not the one who caught me. There was someone else, and it turned out it was an angel. And uh, he was a prisoner of war, and then 
during Badr, while he was a prisoner of war, he became a Muslim and he became a secret Muslim. And he went back to Mecca and he is the one who uh, warned the Prophet about, you know, the battle of Uhud when Quraysh were, you know, preparing to attack and all these things. That is Al-Abbas. Now he's officially emigrating with his family. And this is key because Al-Abbas is the last immigrant of the Muslims. The last Muhajir, the last immigrant is Al-Abbas. Why? Because the Prophet tells us, and even in the Quran, but the Prophet tells us, La hijrata ba'd al There is no emigration after the conquest of Mecca. They're about to conquer Mecca, right? Anybody who goes from Mecca to Medina after that is not considered an immigrant. Because it's peacetime. They're not being persecuted. They're not going to get the rewards of immigrants. Immigrants, we know that they are the highest. Then comes the Ansar, right? So, after the conquest of Mecca, there is no such thing as emigration. لا هجرة بعد الفتح. Authentic hadith. That makes Al-Abbas, because the Fath didn't happen yet. The conquest did not take place yet. They're on their way. So that makes Al-Abbas just made it. He's just the last immigrant, subhanAllah. He got the blessings of an immigrant from Mecca to Medina. So the Prophet ﷺ got very happy. He was very you know, uh, 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 happy that he saw his uncle and he told Al-Abbas, please go and send your family to Medina to keep them safe and come join our army. And this is exactly what Al-Abbas did. And actually that brings me to a point. How many uncles did the Prophet ﷺ have uh, who who uh, had a role in the biography, in you know, in, in the seerah? And the answer to that, he had four uncles who participated in this biography, who had roles in the, in the biography. Two died as Muslims and two uh, died as pagans. So for the two who became Muslims, number one is Hamza. Remember, he died as a martyr in the Battle of Uhud. Right now, Al-Abbas, of course, he dies after the Prophet but right now he's alive. Al-Abbas is the second one. But then when he dies, he dies as a Muslim, of course. And we have the two who died as uh, pagans, Abu Talib, who is the best non-Muslim. The best non-Muslim. Remember, he's the one that the Prophet really wanted him to say the Shahada, but he uh, kind of rejected and did not want to say it. But he helped the Muslims so much. He helped the Prophet so much. He loved him so much more than his own children. And that's why the Prophet was so upset when he died upon paganism. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala willed it that he will be the least punished human in uh, hellfire. That makes him the best non-Muslim. Uh, and you have the, the the fourth is Abu Lahab, who died as a pagan, but he is basically pure evil. Abu Lahab hated Islam. He rejected Islam. He hated the Prophet ﷺ. And there is actually, uh, 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 in the Quran, his name is mentioned. He's mentioned by name. Abi Lahab is mentioned in the Quran uh, in a very negative way. Allah say, basically saying he will be in the worst place uh, in hellfire because how much he hated Islam how much he hated the Prophet for being a prophet you know so these are the four uncles Hamza and Al-Abbas Muslims uh, Abu Talib and Abu Lahab uh, uh, are pagans now the news reached Mecca some rumors started to you know 
that there is, you know, someone is coming to attack you. Just, you know, they were. it was all fuzzy. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by the way, protected the Muslims that uh, he kept that real news from reaching Quraysh up until the last second. So Quraysh didn't know that the Muslims were coming until literally the Muslims were at the gates of Mecca, subhanAllah. And this is Allah's miracle. I mean, 10,000 men, how can you hide that number? Well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can. So anyway, uh, then the Muslims camped around 20 kilometers away from Mecca. And while they were camping, Al-Abbas, basically the Prophet told them to, you know, now they can, you know, uh, light up their fire, you know, the campfires and, and everything, because they don't need to hide anymore. That's it. They don't need it to be discreet anymore. So, uh, Al-Abbas told the Prophet O Prophet of Allah, let me go to Quraysh and negotiate. I don't want any bloodshed. Let me go to them and negotiate with them and, and you know, ask them to surrender and all these things. So the Prophet of course, agreed because we know, as we all know, that the Prophet never wanted war. He wanted peaceful resolutions all the time. He would have loved it if there was no war from the beginning. But again, war was necessary because of what they did. So the Prophet agreed and he said, of course, go ahead. So uh, Al-Abbas went to Mecca to negotiate. Meanwhile, uh, Abu Sufyan and, you know, some of the other seniors were, you know, uh, were able to see uh, the fire uh, of the Muslims, you know, the campfires. And, and, uh, and they saw that there is, looks like a lot, you know, a lot of people are, uh, you know, gathered outside of Mecca. Again, still 20, 20 uh, kilometers, but you can see them from a distance. And uh, they were debating. They were like, who is this? You know, some actually some of the seniors thought that those were help. Those were like tribes who are coming to support Quraysh. So Al-Abbas comes to them while they're, you know, standing and talking. And they still don't realize that he's a Muslim yet. And he tells them that this is the army of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So Abu Sufyan asks, is this the army? Are you sure? And Al-Abbas said, absolutely, 100% sure. So Abu Sufyan goes, so what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? So Al-Abbas said, I have a solution. You come with me to the Prophet ﷺ now, and I shall ask him to forgive you for what you've done to the Muslims, what you've done against Islam and all these things. So of course, now it's clear that Al-Abbas became a Muslim. But guess what? Abu Sufyan actually agrees. Now, we have to understand that Abu Sufyan is the main leader of Mecca now. He is Quraysh's number one man. He is the leader of Quraysh. And he agreed. He said, okay, I'll come with you. So Al-Abbas and Abu Sufyan, in the middle of the night, walked to the camp of the Muslims. And it was, it, it's, it's, subhanAllah, it's unbelievable. You know? Uh, Abu Sufyan covered his face. Again, he's a wanted man for what he did to the Muslims, right? So he covered his face and Abbas was walking next to him and every soldier would come and ask, who's this? And Abbas would respond, this is Al-Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet Wasallam." So they would let him pass. They wouldn't even ask questions about Abu Sufyan. And Abu Sufyan was amazed by the numbers. He's like, what is this? How did this happen? SubhanAllah. How did this happen? You know, different tribes all under the banner of Islam. 
And the deeper they got into the camp, the higher the seniority was of the companions. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's logical. So, of course, they passed by Umar ibn al-Khattab. And Umar recognized Abu Sufyan from his eyes. Umar was very sharp when it came to, you know, recognizing, recognizing people from their eyes. So, Umar recognized Abu Sufyan and he came and he basically blocked him from uh, going or walking any further. And he said, oh, you enemy of Allah, you came to me now, alhamdulillah. I'm going to kill you, basically. You came to me now. It's done. You're done. But then Al-Abbas said, لا يا عمر. No, Umar, he is under my protection. You can't touch him. And as we know, if someone is under the protection of one Muslim, no one else from the Muslims can harm them, no matter what they did. So Umar, even though he can't you know, touch uh, Abu Sufyan, he accompanies uh, Abu Sufyan and Al-Abbas to the tent of the Prophet wasallam. So they walk into the you know into the tent of the Prophet and they you know Al Abbas starts pleading, "O Prophet of Allah, forgive him, uh, Abbas, you know, uh, accept Islam." And you know he's trying so hard, and Omar basically suggests, "Let's just execute Abu Sufyan." Of course, Omar that will be his you know, and it, it's coming from Iman, it's coming from faith. You have to understand, Omar hates the enemies of Allah and the enemies of Islam. He had his ways. You know, but he was never, you know, unfair. Never unfair. He was very jealous. Again, we know Omar has so many blessings. So many blessings. Subhanallah. So, uh, Omar said, let's just, you know, get it over with. You know, he is the head of, 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 of Mecca right now. Let's just, you know, if we execute him now, it will, you know, demoralize uh, the people of Quraysh. So, we will, it will be an easier fight. And to that, Al-Abbas said to Umar, if Abu Sufyan was from your tribe, O Umar, you would never want him to be executed, ever. But because he is from another tribe, it's okay with you that he would be executed. Now, this shows us clearly that Al-Abbas is still new. He doesn't know the customs of the Muslims. He thinks, you know, he's, he's thinking tribalism. Again, Al-Abbas converted secretly before, but he never had to deal with a lot of Muslims up until he emigrated, which was literally like, you know, a day or so before. He's a brand new Muslim, technically, in the Muslim community. So he's thinking tribalism. He doesn't know that what Omar is doing is coming purely from Iman, from faith. And basically, uh, Omar responded to this and he said something very profound. He said, O Abbas, the day you accepted Islam, I was so happy. I was actually more happy than if my father would have accepted Islam if he was still alive. Can you imagine? Someone is accusing Omar of tribalism. So Omar responded and he said, the day you became a Muslim, it was more beloved to me than if my father became a Muslim if he was alive, just because you are the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ. Chose you the love that Omar had for the Prophet ﷺ. And the faith too. Imagine, he was more happy than if his father became a Muslim 
uh, at the time. Incredible. So anyway, the argument ends. The Prophet ﷺ asks them to, you know, uh, go to their tent, each to go to their tents. And uh, basically, uh, Al-Abbas took Abu Sufyan with him. And, you know, through the entire night, he was talking to him about Islam, convincing him of, you know, uh, Islam and all these things. And in the next morning, Abu Sufyan and Al-Abbas, they both go to the tent of the Prophet Wasallam. And the Prophet tells him, isn't it time for you to acknowledge that Allah is the only God? So Abu Sufyan responded and said, O Muhammad, you are very generous. You are uh, very gentle. Because if I were in your place, I would have never treated you the same way you're treating me right now. Meaning he's sitting with them, eating with them, with the Muslims and everything. He was, you know, being asked in a very friendly way. Don't you want to believe that Allah is one? So Abu Sufyan is literally telling him the truth. If you were my prisoner or if you were in my camp, I would have harmed you. I would have, you know, tortured you. I would have not treated you like this at all. As for your question, now he, he's, you know, praising the Prophet ﷺ in his own way. Now he's answering the question. As for your question, if there were any gods beside Allah, I, they would have helped me by now. He's admitting it. If there was any God besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He would have helped me right now. But no one is helping. That means Allah is one. Great. Now, the Prophet asks a second question. Now, isn't it time for you to acknowledge that I am the final messenger of Allah? And Abu Sufyan responds with the same praise. You are so gentle. You are so generous. I would have never done what you're doing. But the problem is, I'm still a little hesitant about you are the prophet. Now, he believes that the Prophet is a prophet. He believes it, 100%. But he is not accepting it. That's what he's trying to say. He's a little hesitant in accepting that fact. Which shows you that, you know, not everyone will accept Islam just like that. Some hearts will be harder than others. You know, some hearts will be very soft to Islam. Will subhanAllah, Allah will open them wide to accept and embrace Islam. Some hearts will need some work. Will need to get accustomed to Islam first. Then they will fully embrace it, subhanAllah. And, you know, Al-Abbas got frustrated. Oh, Abu Sufyan, come on, man. He's basically telling him, what else do you want? We talked about this all night. Come on, what else do you want? And Abu Sufyan takes the testimony of faith right here and then. He basically says, Ashhadu anna la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna kala rasulullah. He's bearing witness that Allah is one and he's bearing witness that the Prophet is uh, the messenger of Allah. But again, like we said, he had a little hesitance in accepting that fact. Not, not, maybe because he was his cousin, maybe he's, God knows, we don't know the, the reasons, but he just, you know, he has. Uh, some hesitance in accepting that fact, but he totally believes it. Then Al-Abbas comes to the Prophet and tells him, listen, now they all celebrated, they were all very happy. And he tells him, listen, Abu Sufyan, he's a man of pride. So give him something, you know, to fill that pride. So the Prophet said, and this is a very famous phrase, uh, he said, tomorrow we will march to Mecca. 
So whoever goes to the haram will be safe. And whoever goes inside of their homes will be safe. And whoever goes into the house of Abu Sufyan will be safe. This is the highest praise. That means, you know, the house of Abu Sufyan is a safe house, basically. And that, of course, you know, feeds the pride of Abu Sufyan a little bit since he's a man of, you know, pride. Then, you know, the next day, the army started marching and Abu Sufyan sees this vast army. And he was truly amazed. You know, Abu Sufyan tells us this himself as a companion afterwards, you know. And he tells Al-Abbas, the kingdom of your nephew and my cousin is magnificent, to be honest. Like he's seeing 10,000 men marching, you know, with the leadership of the Prophet They're all under the leadership of the Prophet So he's telling Al-Abbas, the kingdom of your nephew is magnificent. And Al-Abbas responded and said, it is not a kingdom, it is a prophethood. This is not a kingdom. This is a prophethood. That's what you're looking at right now is a prophethood. So Abu Sufyan said, then it is indeed a magnificent prophethood. You know, he started to understand and to accept again, give him some time and he will be better than anybody. Uh, now, I want you to pause here for a second and look at the Muslims when they, per- they were persecuted in Mecca, when they were tortured, when they were not allowed to pray in public all these things, and look now, subhanAllah, look now, incredible, incredible scene, 10,000 men, 10,000 men, look at the Muslims, six years ago only, in the battle of Badr, six years ago from this incident, from the conquest of Mecca, there were 300 men, 300 men, and look at them now. 10,000 men. Subhanallah. And it shows you that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with patience comes Allah's aid and support. Just wait for it. And as long as you're upon the truth, Allah will always help you and support you. Even if it takes time. Maybe Allah's testing your patience. Also, what's amazing here is that Abu Sufyan, like we said, he is technically still the leader, the main leader of Quraysh in Mecca and now he's marching with the Muslims to go and you know conquer Mecca isn't that amazing subhanallah the shift in one night it's incredible and subhanallah even the people of Mecca inside of Mecca right now they're still fully unaware of what's happening who's coming they don't know subhanallah and this was definitely Allah's miracle now, uh, uh, another interesting thing that took place is that the Prophet ﷺ assigned only the immigrants to lead the army. And that was a very wise decision, by the way. Why? Because this is their home. Imagine if the Ansar were the leaders, the immigrants would feel something. At the end of the day, they were going back home. It should be us leading the army back home, you know? And that's exactly uh, what happened. So Al-Abbas told Abu Sufyan, he gave him an advice. He said, you know what? Rush back to, go back to Mecca. You know, beat the army to Mecca. And tell them to surrender. We don't want bloodshed. Just tell them not to fight. Then Abu Sufyan indeed rushes to Mecca. 
and he basically warns the people, tell them the Muslims are coming. He does not announce his Islam yet. He tells them the Muslims are coming. You know, uh, you should come to my house for safety. Ironically, he never mentions the Haram or if they go to their own houses or their own homes. He says right away, come to my house. The Muslims said that if you guys come to my house, you'll be safe. And this is it shows you, right? It fed uh, Abu Sufyan's pride, what the Prophet did. SubhanAllah. So Abu Sufyan kept asking them to surrender. And while he's, you know, asking them to do this, his wife Hind, remember Hind? The one who mutilated Hamza? Uh, and she cut off his finger, that, that, that Hind? Yeah, she came and she smacked him on, uh, uh, on the face. And she twisted the hair of his beard as a sign of, you know, like uh, humiliation. And she started cursing him out. And she basically said to everybody, he should be killed. He is such an evil leader telling his people to surrender. What kind of leader? Imagine this is his wife, you know. Uh, So uh, she said, he's an evil leader. What kind of evil leader is he? You know, asking his people to surrender. And Abu Zufyan kept telling them, do not listen to her. She will cause your destruction. And he kept repeating, come to my house for protection. Then they all responded, how is your house will fit all of us? (laughs) I mean, you keep telling us to come to your house. Do you see how many we are? We're not going to fit in your house. Then he tells them this whole message, which is, okay, go to the haram if you want to be safe. Or stay in your homes if you want to be safe. Or, you know, you can come to my house if you want to be safe. They cornered him basically, so he had to spill the beans. Now, the Muslims arrived to Mecca in three contingents. The right side of Mecca, the left side of Mecca, and the front side. And our Prophet ﷺ commanded them, he told them basically, do not harm any one or fight anyone unless they attack first. So the Prophet was clear. We're not here to fight or start a fight. Or We're here because you broke the treaty and we're here. This is it. This is the end. But we'd rather not to fight. And subhanAllah, Mecca was successfully conquered without even a small battle. Subhanallah. And there was no spoils of war. There was it was no battle, so there's no spoils of war, right? There was no war taking place, you know. And Subhanallah, our Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, you know, was riding his camel until he reached Kaaba. He reached the Kaaba, and then he started doing tawaf around the Kaaba while riding his camel. And then uh, the Prophet was known to, you know, he had he owned a staff. He always, you know, was holding a staff. Right, So he was holding his staff and there were around 360 idols around the Kaaba. So the Prophet took his staff and just pointed at each idol. And every time the Prophet pointed his staff to an idol, the staff immediately collapsed. And that was a miracle by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet didn't break them with the staff. He just pointed at them and they would immediately break and crumble and you know collapse. Until all the idols were destroyed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his prophet. Subhanallah, it was, it's just a magnificent view. And everybody's watching this now. 
Everybody, all the Muslims are watching this. The people in the Haram who are seeking protection are watching this. Subhanallah. Then the keys of the Kaaba were brought to the Prophet. Now we know that the Kaaba, there is a room inside. There's a keys inside the Kaaba. It's inaccessible now because you know the amount of people and, and so forth. But you know, the keys of the Kaaba were brought to the Prophet وسلم, and he basically opened the Kaaba and he destroyed the remains of the paganism. Any you know drawings, items, uh, idols, whatever that were inside the Kaaba, he destroyed them completely. Then our Prophet وسلم, turns to everyone in the city now and he tells them, La ilaha illallah. There is no God or there is no deity but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is worthy of worship. Then he tells them this, You are all the same in the sight of Allah. You're all the same. Whether you are black, whether you are white, whether you are, you know, from this family, whether you are from that family, you are all the same in the sight of Allah. And the only thing that makes one of you better than the other is their good deeds. The only thing that Allah sees from you is your good deeds. That's what elevates your rank. Nothing else, not skin color, not uh, uh, family, uh, not, uh, you know, career, not, you know, prestige. None of that. Allah does not care because Allah is the one who gave you all this. Think about it. Allah is the one who gave you all this. Your skin color, given to you by Allah. Your wealth, given to you by Allah. Your family, given to you by Allah. What would Allah care about any of this? But what Allah is expecting from you is your good deeds. Or bad deeds. Again, it, that will make you either a good person in the sight of Allah or a bad person in the sight of Allah. Then our Prophet وسلم, uh, asked the people of Quraysh, what do you think I will do to you today? So they all said, you are a noble man from a noble family. Akhin Karimin, Ibn Akhin Karimin. That's what they said. And we expect only good from you. So our Prophet ﷺ responded and said, you are free and may Allah forgive you. You are free. Go. And this shows the character of the Prophet ﷺ. Shows the mercy he had. Those people tried to kill him multiple times, humiliate him, make fun of him, persecute him when he was still in Mecca, tried to kill him when he went to Medina. Yet, when he had the upper hand, when he had the authority, the power, he chose to show mercy. And we all should learn from him. You know? And it, this actually shows the reality of Islam in general. It's not a violent religion. It's not a religion of war. It is the religion of worshipping and submitting to Allah. Whether this happened, because if you're trying to force me now not to worship Allah, and the only way for me to defy you is war, then war it is. And this is exactly what the Muslims did. But the religion of Islam does not preach war. The sole purpose of the religion of Islam is the complete submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, fulfilling His commands, worshipping Him and worshipping Him alone. Subhanallah. And this is the incident when our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa gave Uthman ibn Talha. Now, 
I know there are too many names. Uthman ibn Talha is the third person who converted to Islam with Amr ibn al-As and Khalid ibn al-Walid. Uthman ibn Talha is the man who was uh, who helped Umm Salama when he was still a pagan to emigrate to Medina uh, with her son. And he was still a pagan and he was very, you know, a gentleman. He didn't even look at her, whatever. And he gave her basically a ride to Medina. That is Uthman ibn Talha. The Prophet ﷺ gave him the keys of the Kaaba because his family were responsible for the keys of the Kaaba. And until this day, his family holds the keys of the Kaaba. Until this day, as we speak, subhanAllah. Then our Prophet وسلم, in a magnificent scene calls Bilal to call everyone for prayers, to do the adhan from on top of the Kaaba. So Bilal climbed on top of the Kaaba and he started calling people for prayer. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Ashadu Anna La Ilaha illallah. And he, you know, uh, he uh, basically recited the adhan to call people for uh, prayers. And imagine, this was Bilal, the slave who used to be persecuted and tortured for saying La ilaha illallah. Now he is saying it out loud on top of the Kaaba and they're all watching him. Subhanallah. This is Allah's fulfillment. Wallahi. Imagine, the first thing, because remember we, we when we talked about Bilal and his story in the beginning of, you know, uh, of, the, of the season, we said what Bilal used to be tortured and used to put a very hot rock on his chest, remember? And he used to raise his index and say, Ahadun Ahad, Allah is one, Allah is one. Ahadun Ahad, Allahu is one, Allahu Akbar. Allah is the greatest. And they used to torture him for it. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala willed that the first person to call out loud for monotheism, for that Allah is one, is Bilal. This is Allah's subhanAllah, Allah's plan. Allah's ultimate justice in this life at least. There's, you know, the, the ultimate justice, we know that it's going to be in the hereafter. But for now, this is Allah's justice showing, subhanAllah. He's calling everyone, all the Muslims for prayers. And he's, you know, saying it out loud. And that was a very and a truly magnificent scene, subhanAllah. And it gives us hope. If you feel that you're, you know, uh, you are uh, oppressed, if you feel that you're helpless, go back to Allah. Allah is the ultimate support. He's the ultimate ally that you truly want him to be your ally. No one is better than Allah when it comes to, you know, forming an alliance. Form an alliance with Allah, not with, you know, anybody else. Subhanallah. Now, uh, uh, with that being said, thank you so much for listening. Uh, wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.